On Wednesday night, we saw Jesus dealing again with spiritual wickedness, darkness, demonic stuff. Um, and, um, and the people, their lack of faith, we saw that all developing. And then we also are seeing the heating up of the case that they're trying to build against Jesus to ultimately send him to the cross. They think they're doing it. Jesus was doing it willingly, going to go to the cross. But, um, but these, these religious leaders, man, they're constantly trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick him, get, catch him in his words. And we have the same kind of story. But um, this time Jesus kind of brings the heat. Have you heard, you know, this narrative out there that's kind of saying churches should just only speak about what we're for? We're not supposed to speak about what we're against. We're supposed to be for. Be, we need to be that. The reason I talk like that is that's what those pastors sound like to me. <laughs> A little mamby pamby, if you ask me. Um, yeah. Did Jesus only talk about what he was for? If you have any doubts, we'll remove them this morning. Jesus is going to hammer some people, like, like more than I would be willing to do, uh, honestly. Uh, maybe. I don't know. It depends on the situation. <laughs> Mine would be less righteous probably, uh, but he does it righteously. And I believe it's actually love that motivates. This is one of the things we talked about in Prophecy Update on Friday night. If you missed it, it's an important study that we talked about in the last days, deception. And this idea of people just only wanting to speak loving things, but love and truth go hand in hand. And if you don't have truth, you don't really have love. It's not real love. It's a fake love. So truth and love, love and truth go hand in hand. And Jesus is going to display this. He's going to speak powerful, brutal words against this group of people. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, you say, well, that's not very loving. Oh, it's the most loving thing he could do. Why? Because there's a bunch of people being misled uh, by these religious leaders. And it is interesting. I have to admit, Jesus seems to hammer away mostly, almost only, to religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, uh, the lawyers, the, um, the, the people of the, of the theology and all that, um, and the, uh, the Sanhedrin, those kind of guys. Um, but those were the ones who were misleading, and we talked about that even from the pulpits uh, in the churches around the world today. There's a lot of misleading and, and um, perhaps even wolves in sheep's clothing. And These are things we should be aware of. But Jesus, it, you know, when I talk about stuff like that, people get all up in a tizzy. Oh, how, how can you say, you should only talk about what we're for and not talk about what we're against. And, and the truth is, um, I, I believe Jesus modeled for us the way to do that. And we see it right here in Luke chapter 11. So let's pick it up um, in verse 37, Luke eleven thirty-seven. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. Now, this verse is already packed full. First of all, a Pharisee invites him over. And, and uh, do you think Jesus knew this Pharisee had ill intentions? Um, I'm pretty sure. You know, by this time, the Pharisees, there, there weren't a lot of them that really, you know, turning and following Jesus. Um, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew what he was doing here. Um, but it, you, you, one thing I love about Jesus, one of my favorite things uh, among many, is he was always seen eating meals and he, he seemed to love food. Uh, man, he, he would go to people's house for dinner and then and even, he, he would even invite himself over to people's house for dinner. I'm going to your house for dinner tonight, he said you know, to uh, Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Like, it's pretty funny uh, to me, but, um, but it's, Jesus' enemies called him a glutton. Even though he wasn't a glutton, uh, they called him that because they, they saw, always saw him eating. He seemed to enjoy food. Um, I think that's great. Um, one of my life verses here. But um, <laughs> no, I, I know, don't, don't write letters. Um, but we have the Pharisee uh, inviting him over for dinner. And, and we can assume it's probably not for the best intentions. We'll see that. 
But there's another thing you miss, uh, maybe as a Gentile American Christian, um, Jesus walking in and going straight to the table for the meat, it says here, or for the food. This would have already set off the religious leaders at the time. Why? Well, check it out, verse 38. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, some of you are like, what is this Pharisee? His mother? Like, wash your hands before dinner. Isn't that what your mom always told you to do? You know, go wash up, you know? And, and you're always like, oh, I remember as a kid, I hated washing. Now as an adult, I'm a freak about washing my hands. I love washing. Uh, but, but that's not what was going on here. Don't be mistaken here. Uh, this, this is not saying, hey, he's gonna have bacteria on his hands, the poor guy. That's not what's happening. This was a ritual cleansing, a ritual wash, washing that the Jews required, um, especially the religious leaders. They were um, sort of insane about making sure you're ceremonially cleansed before you eat your food. Um, what was a ceremonial cleansing? Um, it wasn't really the best idea of how to wash your hands. Um, you wouldn't scrub your hands. You wouldn't do anything like that. In fact, um, you know, one of the things when we go to Jerusalem, you can see this kind of ceremonial washing when you go to the Western Wailing Wall. There's these little fountains there and they, they wash their hands in that ceremonial way. There's a little vessel and you know, you're supposed to take the vessel and pour it on your right hand and then you grab a towel and then you hold the vessel and then you pour it with the, on the other hand and, and then you let your hand and then you get the, the towel and dry. But it's, it's not really a great cleansing thing. It's more of a ritualistic cleansing that they do even to this day. Now, in Jesus' time, they didn't have the fancy vessels as much. In fact, there, there were laws written by the experts on the law. I'll tell about that guy in a second. But um, they, they would have a thing where you needed one and a half eggshells full of water for one hand and one and a half eggshells. Then you turn your hand over and you do another one and a half. It was a very specific ritual cleansing that they were really into. And so the typical thing would have been for Jesus to walk into the Pharisee's house, dart right for the ceremonial cleansing bowl, and take the vessel and do this little splash, 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 and then, you know, dry, 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 and then go sit down and have dinner. Now, by the way, to the Pharisee, when he saw Jesus do that, Jesus was a breaker of the law. That was his worldview. Jesus was a breaker of the law by not ceremonially cleansing. Now, question for you Bible students. Was that a law of Moses or was that a law that was a tradition that men made up? It was a tradition. Oh, the law did say to wash your hands. That, does, that is part of the law, but the, the experts on the law, they interpreted and said, well, we better make sure people do this right. So they made up these weird eggshell laws and amounts of water and how you splash them on your hands. And, 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 and if you watch the way they ceremonial cleanse, I'm pretty sure they're still pretty dirty, their hands are. Um, I'm kind of more about scrubbing and you know, getting, getting under the fingernails, get all nice and clean, you know? uh, but no, uh, they, they didn't do that. It wasn't really about the bacteria. It became about religion and it was a rule. And, and, and suddenly, that's why, that's why the Pharisee marvels. He didn't even wash up before dinner. What a, they would have said, this guy's like a Gentile. That's what they would have thought of him. Now, we know now that Jesus uh, knew exactly what he was thinking. Uh, I wonder if Jesus did that on purpose. Um, do you think Jesus maybe didn't go wash up on purpose? Um, I think so. He just went right to the table, just to kind of blow him away. Um, I'm just being like Jesus here at Athey Creek, our leadership, you know, people say, Brett, this isn't a real church. Where's the cross? Why don't you have a cross on your building? Um, you know what? I love crosses on buildings. I love seeing churches with crosses. I think it's great. Well, why don't you have one? Because everybody thinks we have to have one. That's why we don't have them. I, I, I'm being, just being like Jesus. Does the Bible say you're supposed to have a cross on your church building? 
There's nothing even close to that. It's just a tradition of men. I think it's fine if you do it. Here's where it gets bad. If, if the cross on the building becomes sacred somehow and holy and people get all uh, holied up about it. And, you know, I've, I've got pastor friends that took like, one of my buddies uh, became a pastor of a church that existed for over a hundred years. And one of the first things he wanted to move this big cross that was in the middle of their platform kind of over to the side and do some other things with the decor. Um, but him doing that was pretty much sending him straight to hell because he moved the cross. Um, that's when you know you've made it into an idol. You've making a, a graven image that you sort of start to worship. You got, got to watch that sort of behavior. But Jesus, you know, I wonder if there's other things we do just out of ritual or human tradition that I'm not really sure the Lord actually meant for us to do it that way. You know, some of us dutifully play, pray, pray before a meal. Is there any problem with praying and blessing the meal or being thankful? Of course not. Um, and we do that in the Metter family. We bless the food and stuff like that. But I hope you understand uh, if somebody doesn't do that, they're not going to hell if they don't pray before their meal. I, I want you to know if there's somebody who pray, doesn't pray before their meal, did you know they're not, they're not even sinning? It's not even a sin. Um, because the Bible doesn't require that. If you're really a Bible student, if you're, especially if you know the Old Testament with so many people in the church today don't, but um, when are you supposed to pray for your meals? Anybody know? Afterward, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, after you're done eating, you thank the Lord for the delicious food. Uh, that makes more sense to me anyway. Um, but <laughs> but um, this idea of praying, you know, uh, it's Deuteronomy 8.10, when thou have eaten and are full, then you'll bless the Lord for the good land that he's given you for the food that you're eating. And, and um, I think that's great. But even that's not the mandate. We see examples of Jesus blessing the food, like when he fed the 5,000. But don't you think a prayer is appropriate for expanding five loaves and two fishes into 5,000 meals. Um, that, I think a prayer is appropriate for that. Um, and you know, uh, first Timothy says to eat meat with Thanksgiving, and I do. <laughs> this, this is a life verse right here, commanding, there's people in the last days that will command to abstain from meat. I remember reading this even 15 years ago thinking, who's gonna make people stop eating meat? That's ridiculous. Uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is making that fake meat uh, and he's wanting the whole world to forget cows and, and uh, just have the you know, fake meat made of tofu or whatever it is. Uh, I'm sure it's delicious, but I will never try it. Um, there's nothing like a good old tomahawk or ribeye steak. Uh, so when the Bible says there's gonna be people coming to command to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with Thanksgiving, uh, which we all did last week, Thanksgiving, had lots of meat. Um, and it says from them which believe and know the truth for every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And so this is the verse that people say, oh, you gotta sanctify, set, a, set apart the food before the dinner and stuff like that. Um, it's a great practice, but this isn't really what this verse is actually requiring. Um, but we are to eat with thanksgiving. So it's kind of a funny thing. I wonder if we dutifully do stuff and we have to, you know, like even closing your eyes for the prayer. Uh, that the Bible doesn't tell us we have to close our eyes when we pray. In fact, when Jesus prays, he always looks up to the sky. Um, so these are just traditions. I'm not saying you can't do them. Just be careful by enforcing them. If you start enforcing your traditions on everybody else, then you become a Pharisee. That's not a good thing. We don't wanna be Pharisees. This Pharisee's imposing on Jesus his little cleansing ritual that, that, that uh, these guys came up with that really wasn't even biblically sound uh, to force people to do that. Traditions of people, watch out for that. By the way, watch out if you're you know, moving and going to another church. Some churches put 
the Bible on equal plane with tradition. They say, you know, the tradition of the church plus the Bible, that's how we determine what we do. Um, Athey Creek doesn't do that, and I'll tell you why. Tradition is dangerous. I can't defend a lot of the church tradition. There's, there's a lot of church history. I, I love studying church history. We can learn so much good and bad, but um, there's a lot of bad in church history and tradition can mis mislead you very badly. A lot, there's a lot of bad traditions that have come up through the ages. Um, I love that everything we need to know about what we're supposed to do in church is right here in the Bible. I don't hold tradition next to the Bible. Tradition's way down here. We can learn from it, glean from it, but the Bible's the anchor, the Bible's the foundation about everything we do, everything we believe. If, if we're doing stuff at Athey Creek that goes against the Bible or is forgetting things in the Bible, um, our goal is to change and to fix it. Um, and our leadership constantly is seeking the Lord and praying about how can we make sure that we're doing better and better at just doing what the Bible tells us to do as a church. Well, anyway, um, that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus gets kind of noticed as, as this uh, you know, lawbreaker. Um, and, and then now in verse 39, Jesus knows what they're thinking. So he's now going to respond to them. It says in verse 39, and the Lord said unto him, now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? How many of your Thanksgiving dinner started out like this? Uh, people being called, did you see Jesus got three names in there? He says, you're ravening, you're wickedness, and you're fools. Uh, that's, that's some serious accusation. Um, and it's interesting to me um, that uh, um, there in verse, uh, verse 41, it goes on, but rather, um, he says, but instead of you know, being clean on the outside, sort of fake, even though you're filthy on the inside, he says, verse 41, but rather give alms of such things as you have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Now, what's he saying about all things are clean unto you? This, this sort of echoes back to 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Maybe you're familiar. Remember when Paul, he said, all things are lawful unto me, but not everything is expedient. All things are lawful, but not everything edifies. Remember when Paul taught that? It's, it's the same thing when Jesus says, all things are clean to you. In other words, you guys are all caught up in this, uh, the laws and the traditions. Um, forget about that. Um, but, you know, your traditions, not, not, not the... Uh, interior of the man, but you guys are worried more about the exterior. Um, instead of doing all that worrying about the exterior polished cup and, and vessel, he says, give alms to the poor. Like do something from the heart that's actually real and good that actually is, is, makes a difference. Not this polishing your cup on the outside, making everybody think you're a religious person, but do something like, and I think it's interesting that Jesus says to give alms. Uh, that's, that's one of the things he's, he's, uh, he's talking about. So he's basically saying, ditch the religiosity and move in, in generosity. That, that's what he's saying. Uh, forget your religious washing and cleansing ceremonial ritual, you know, um, but do, do the good stuff. This reminds me of the Old Testament. There were times the elders came and said, Lord, we, should we continue to fast and mourn and pray as we have these 70 years? And they, they were weeping and mourning, fasting and praying, you know, every, every once a year. So they, for some reason, asked the Lord, Lord, should we continue weeping, mourning, fasting? And the Lord says, when you, weep, when you were weeping and, and fasting, and mourning, you did it for yourselves. Uh, you can do it if you want to, but, but I don't care, the Lord says. But I'd rather you show mercy and be compassionate and kind and have good judgment. 
Um, that's what the Lord said. Like, it's, it's funny how many times in the Old Testament people thought they were doing something that was pleasing to the Lord. Um, but, you know, the rituals, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul, the king of Israel, had to learn from Samuel. Um, and so this is kind of what Jesus is saying. You know, instead of being all polished up as a religious, you know, leader with your little polished cup, um, your inside is wicked and you're a fool thinking that that's the way it's supposed to be. Go and give alms to the poor. Um, and now Jesus is gonna pronounce six woes upon um, two different groups, maybe three uh, of people. Um, and we, we lose the power of the woe. Um, you're like, Brett, what is, why, does, why does the Bible say woe all the time? Um, when I was a kid, I thought, because I grew up on a little farm, we had horses, and, and uh, when we rode our horses, that's how you get a horse to stop, whoa. I thought Isaiah had a horse named Ismi when he was like, whoa, Ismi. Um, it's like, but no, I didn't really, I'm just kidding. But, um, but um, you know, and, and some of you, you know, if you grew up in Southern California, you're like, surfer, you're like, oh, whoa, dude, gnarly wave, whoa. Uh, that was kind of the thing for a while. Um, this woe is, is earth-shaking. It's it's, you gotta kind of put away the other woe. Like, uh, it's not that, it's woe. Um, in fact, it's an interesting entomology. The word woe in the Greek um, is ouahi um, in the Greek. Um, and this is starting to get closer, you know, it evolved from the Hebrew, alas, or woe, alas, um, uh, to, to the Greek, to actually today, uh, you'll hear Jews even say this more in a Yiddish sort of form. They'll say, oy vey. That's how they say it t today, oy vey. Now, what is, it, what is a Jew saying um, when, when you hear the oy vey? Um, well, Webster's talks about the oy vey of the Yiddish uh, is deep distress or misery from grief, wretchedness or regret. But this word, the, oh, the, the woe of the Bible, um, it's not just regret or misery or grief. It implies something greater too, this word or woe unto you, as Jesus says here. It, it implies they don't yet realize that they're headed for destruction and problems in the future. It's like when, when you hear in the Bible, woe unto you. Um, when Jesus is saying this, like, you guys don't have any idea how off you are and the, the trouble that's coming for you. Um, that's the idea of this, of this word, woe. So three of these woes out of the six are gonna be given to the Pharisees. And we'll introduce the other groups uh, here in a minute. But let's take a look. Now, you know, Jesus is here at dinner. He started things off calling them fools, uh, wicked and ravening. Uh, but he's just getting warmed up. He's gonna now hit the woes. We start in verse 42. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. What an interesting thing Jesus starts off with, with the woe. Um, he again is talking about their exterior, you know, uh, you know, virtue signaling that they were so good at, these these Pharisees, they would sit in their houses with their windows open as passers-by would walk by and, and they, would, they, would, they would get out their spice rack and start counting their mint and their rue and their cumin and their uh, salt and pepper. They'd literally count the grains of those herbs, uh, you know, nine for me, one for the Lord. And they just divvy it all up. And then they'd make a little uh, container with the Lord's herbs. And then they'd bring that as a sacrifice, as a tithe. 
That's what the word tithe, by the way, means, um, both in the Old Testament and the New. Um, when you read that in the English, it just means one-tenth. And so that's, this is one of those scriptures that is interesting. Um, now, I was talking about this the other day, how, how rarely I talk about tithing. I do talk about tithing when it comes up in the Bible, because we go verse by verse. This is an interesting verse when it comes to the idea of tithing uh, for several reasons. Um, but one thing we need to establish, uh, tithing is a, is a get to, not a got to. Um, if you think you have to tithe because the Old Testament law demands it, well, we're not under the Old Testament law. Praise the Lord for that. We'd all be dead right now if we were. The law of the Old Testament was to drive us to the goodness of Jesus Christ. So you say, oh, good, I don't have to tithe. Correct, you don't have to. But it is an interesting principle that is seen not just in the Old Testament law, but in the Bible. Did you know the principle of tithing even preceded the law um, there in Genesis um, when, when, uh, remember when Abraham shows up to um, uh, the Salem and, and meets up with the king of Salem named Melchizedek? A very mysterious meeting. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it explains that Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's this great speculation among theology that says, who was Melchizedek? Some people believe he was just a picture of Jesus, maybe. Others say, no, he was a Christophany. That is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself because Abraham goes and worships this king, this priest. Uh, there's not supposed to be kings and priests, by the way, in the Old Testament, but this one was. Abraham worships him and gives him a tithe. We read that in Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, uh, where it says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, tithes of all. One-tenth of everything he possessed, Abraham gave to Melchizedek. Um, it's an interesting picture. Uh, and, and, and if you know, who Melchizedek uh, is, according to Hebrews, it's really Abraham giving a tenth to the Lord. That's the idea. Now, um, you say, okay, Brett, so tithing, giving a tenth of what all you have, that's a principle of the Bible. It's a get to, not a got to. Um, but it is interesting here, Jesus tells these guys in the New Testament, shockingly, um, and by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament I think you can defend the idea of tithing, um, you know, giving is seen all throughout the New Testament. But the idea of giving a tithe, Jesus says to these guys, you guys tithe of your mint and rue. Uh, you know, he said, you should have shown good judgment and loved God. And then he also tags at the end of that little verse, he says, but not to leave the other undone. In other words, you're supposed to still tithe, he says. He's like, don't leave that undone, keep doing that. But first and foremost, you should be showing good judgment and loving God. So I, I, that's why I personally feel like tithing is something I get to do. Jesus said, don't leave it undone. So I'm gonna do my best to not do that. That's not an Old Testament law. That's a principle of the Lord about um, giving, which I love. Um, and you know, uh, if you're giving begrudgingly and saying, I don't wanna give, uh, you know, and if you, every time you're thinking of giving you know, to the Lord, uh, it makes you mad. You probably shouldn't do it. I think you're wasting your money. It should be uh, something that's joyful. It should be a response to your love for God. See, I think that's part of what Jesus is saying to these this, this Pharisee saying, you guys should have shown good judgment. By the way, good judgment equals truth. And he says, you should show good judgment, showing truth, and then also loving God. And then don't forget the tithe. I wonder if that's the perfect order have good judgment, know what the truth is, 
love God, and then as a response to your love for God, then don't leave the other part done, done, giving of your tithe. That's the idea. Uh, these guys were giving of their tithes just to be seen of men and be impressive. Wow, look, they tithe their herbs and spices. Wow. And that's, that, that's what they were doing. Um, so, so Jesus, I love how Jesus here is kind of um, sort of hitting them um, in the thing that they were famous for. They were famous for majoring on the minors, uh, you know, doing these religious acts and everybody going, wow, look how spiritual they are. Their focus was on small details while ignoring that which was crucial um, and eternal in nature, you know, to love God and to have good judgment. Um, and, uh, and so he says, do those things first and foremost and then tithe. By the way, on this giving thing, the Bible, one of the famous scriptures, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verses six through seven, but this I say, he which sows sparingly shall he which uh, he'll, he'll reap also sparingly, but, um, but he that shall sow bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I, I love that. The word cheerful is great. Um, even this word, the English word cheerful, doesn't quite sum up what this word is. Um, if you look up the Greek word for cheerful, the Greek word is um, hilaros, where we get our word hilarious. It's the same etymology, uh, hilarious. Are you a hilarious giver? Or are you a delirious giver? Uh, are you, you know, are you, a, 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 when, when it's time to give of your tithe, are you just joyful and say, oh Lord, this is so great. And you know what I've found is um, so many people that are Christians who know the principle of tithing, um, it is a cheerful thing. If you've done it long enough and steady enough, you'll, you'll realize, man, you just can't outgive God. God is so faithful. And, and there is a hilarity to it um, because it doesn't always make a lot of sense for you to give one-tenth but the government always takes, already takes half your money and you want us to give 10. I don't want you to give 10. Um, uh, the Lord suggests in his word, I think that's the, a good number to start with. I love it when people debate about the 10%. Well, we don't have to give 10%. And I would say, well, you don't have to. There's other models in the scripture, like early in the book of Acts, the whole church, they brought all their possessions, 100%, put them before the apostles and piled it up. Uh, that's a model for you if you want. Um, choose one. I'll take the 10% one. That, that's, that's, that's easy um, comparatively. Um, but be that as it may, Jesus is, is kind of nailing these guys for, um, for their um, bad judgment and also not loving God. They were just doing religious things. Oh, God forbid that happens to Athey Creek or the church of Jesus Christ in general. Well, that brings us to woe number two. Woe number two, verse 43. Woe unto you Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. They had the best seats in the house of the synagogue because uh, they were important. I remember watching a documentary on some church that, you know, big church that was, had a lot of celebrities in it. And it, it actually, I, I just kind of felt my skin crawl when they were showing how they usher the VIPs into this church with uh, security. And then they have, they have VIP section for all the celebrity people that sit over in this sanctuary. And I was just like, ah, oh, that's so missing the point. And so, kind of heartbreaking. And, and that, that all's kind of fallen apart, by the way, which you can expect that. Whenever, whenever people and pridefulness and you know, the, the wanting to have the chief seats, well, Brett, you're sitting up there high on your stool in front of everybody. Do you love that? Actually, I do not. 
Um, it helps for me to be able to see y'all. And um, I don't know if it's helpful for you to see me. I've been told I have a good radio face uh, for ministry, but, um, but, but I'm sitting on the same stool. <laughs> that was great. Um, it's not that funny. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I'm sitting on the same stool I did 25 years ago. Like, like these, these stools, um, and, and, and when we had five people in the room. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, that is something that we have to think about is, you know, there's this whole thing of celebrity pastor. And I just wanna say, and go on the record, um, that's never been my heart or my attitude. I hate that whole thing, uh, the idea of a celebrity pastor. Well, Brett, you're a celebrity pastor. I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. What is a celebrity pastor? I'm not really sure what the definition is, but here's the thing. Um, uh, do I have Justin Bieber as a close friend? No. Do I wear $8,000 tennis shoes? Nope. Have I written books? Nope, not that that's a bad thing. I, I heard, somebody heard that I was writing a book, which I wasn't. And then um, somebody I heard, they said, oh, I'm leaving Athey Creek if Brett writes a book. That's it, that's the last straw. I'm like, don't let the door hit you. It's like, uh, there's other churches you can go to that, uh, but, but writing a book doesn't make a celebrity pastor. I get why people think that or whatever on the, the you know, there's, there are some weird things with book writing and stuff that happens with churches, but, but um, no, you know, my whole thing has been to, to do this. I, feel, I felt called since I was 12 years old, not to be a celebrity, but to teach the Bible. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. Um, you know, I'll, I'll keep teaching the Bible. Um, and if, if five people came to Athe Creek, I was teaching the Bible. Wednesday night Bible study for a long time was less than 10 people uh, every Wednesday night. And I was just teaching through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, I've not changed anything I'm doing. And just the fact that people are coming and filling a room doesn't really mean that, the, that we're trying to be celebrities here or a mega church. That's something we never really asked for or even prayed about being a mega church or anything like that. And yet there's this big thing about mega churches and celebrity pastors. And so people lump us into that. And I would just say, we are not a mega church. We are a Bible teaching church. We teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's what we do. And if people try to tell you, you go to a mega church with a celebrity pastor, um, you have my blessing to say, nope, we go to a Bible teaching church. People are hungry for the word of God. And it's not, they're not, it's not all about Pastor Brett. It's actually about Jesus and his word. That's what, that's what Athey Creek is trying to focus on. Um, that's an important thing. Uh, so I resent uh, that whole celebrity pastor thing. Now, um, if people happen to like me, that's really nice. I think that's nice. I've had a lot of people who don't like me. If, you, if you're wondering, there's a lot of people who don't like me. Just listen to some of the podcasts out there. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't like me. Um, and that's fine, but, um, but it's not about me. It really is about the word of God and Jesus Christ. The, the, the Pharisees, it really was about getting in the chief seats. They wanted to be thought of as big shots. Move away from the Christian church and pastors and leadership. We, you know, we, we need to be cognizant of this whole problem. But I wonder about just the general church. How many of you really wanna be seen as someone who's notable? Some of you that maybe wanna have a better reputation that people think highly of you. Um, you wanna be an influencer on Instagram and have lots of likes. You wanna do this, you wanna do that. And that, that same pharisaical kind of wanting to be seen of men in the upper seats and stuff, that can be a, not just in the church leadership, that can be in the church in general. Um, humble ourselves, all of us, pastors, leaders, volunteers, church members, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will do what? Anybody? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will? 
there and is lift you up. He'll lift you up. He'll lift you up, not lifting up yourself. So this is, this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're all about this. By the way, I remember when I was a kid, uh, they used to put the seats behind the pastor on the stage. Did, you guys, did any of you guys go to church like that when you were a kid? Yeah, some of you guys. The pa- the, there was a pastor and then the big old deacons would sit behind there and they'd sit there almost like, we're gonna hear the pastor and if he says something, well, we're gonna get him. Like that, that's what it looked like to me. That's what I thought. But I realized they were sort of not gonna do that because there was this one big elder deacon guy at the church when I was a little kid, um, and he sat back there, and it was like a clockwork. 10 minutes into the sermon, he was out, man, just out. I remember, this is a true story, one Sunday he was like this, and drool was coming out of his, uh, I remember as a little kid going, man, uh, he's really asleep. Um, uh, Why did they give those guys the seats? I'm not sure where that tradition came from, Um, but, That'll never happen here at Athey Creek. I don't, I don't, I, nobody wants it. Our elders don't want to sit up here and be known uh, as, you know, big shots or anything. It's just not the way the church should be. Um, we want to exalt Jesus Christ and him alone. That's our goal. Um, uh, now, uh, before, uh, you know, we move on from here, um, you know, the Lord, the Lord wants us to uh, be careful about what we do and how we do it. Matthew 6, uh, verses three and four, Jesus said, when you do your alms or give to the poor, let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth, for that your alms that you give will be done in secret. The, the thing that we wanna do is not be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees had trumpets they would blow when they'd give alms to the poor, then they'd go, duh, 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 and everybody go, wow, what a giving Pharisee, how compassionate. These are the kinds of things Jesus is um, you know, hitting this Pharisee, saying, woe unto you. Uh, the temptation to be seen and lifted up in public ministry or, or to be known in the marketplace. Um, you know, that, that's what he says, woe unto you um, that uh, want to be in the uppermost seats in the synagogues and having greetings in the marketplace. Oh, Pharisee so-and-so, we can't believe we're seeing you here. That's bad, we don't want to do that. Um, so anyway, that's woe number two. Woe number three, verse 44, woe unto you scribes. Now we're adding sort of the, the second or half group, because uh, he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were um, a, a different bunch. They were all re- religious, but they were also known to be very academic and smart, uh, just, just so you know. So now he adds the scribes in, verse 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Now, this is a verse that, again, in our modern culture, we're like, huh? What, what is this analogy Jesus is giving about graves and stuff and men walking over them? Well, first, let's, let's talk about hypocrites because we, we know the word hypocrite uh, to be, uh, you know, sort of the idea of, um, you know, you tell people to do one thing and then, do, and then you actually do another. And the Pharisees did do this. They were hypocrites in that sense as well. But it, Jesus is saying something more specific because the, the word used here is, um, is the Greek word hypocrites. Um, that's the word in the Greek. And the hypocrites is actually something you know um, from the Greek Hellenistic culture. Remember when you studied theater uh, or went to your theater class or saw a theater you know, presentation, they always have the two masks, the happy face mask and the sad face mask. That comes from the Greek Hellenistic culture, the, those little masks that they put on in, in uh, the, theatrical uh, Greek events back in the old first century. The word for those masks, they didn't call them masks, they called them hypocrites. Um, it meant that they were a, a fake face um, and that they were play acting. The, the, the word hypocrites in the Greek means play actor. 
You're acting one way, but you're a different person behind the mask. That, that's the idea here. So Jesus says, woe unto you Pharisees and scribes, you're hypocrites. You're, you're, you're play actors under masks. You have a show on the outside that's not really what's going again on the inside. And then he mentions graves. So what, what's this whole thing about graves? He says, you know, you're hypocrites for you are as graves which appear not and men walk over them or not always aware of them. In biblical times, in, in Jesus's time, the first century time, um, they, they saw the idea of stepping on a grave is very detrimental to your faith. Um, maybe you've sensed that a little bit. Have you ever been at a funeral, like a graveside, like you go to Willamette and you're, you're walking in the grass and then you realize, oh, oops, I might be walking on somebody. And suddenly you're uncomfortable and you're walking more in a graph sort of shape of trying to avoid walking on somebody's grave because it just feels a little weird. Well, to the Jew, if you walked on someone's grave, you were defiled and you couldn't even go into the temple if you walked on somebody's grave. Um, uh, for a while, you had to go through a cleansing ritual and all this stuff if you stepped on a grave you became defiled. So Jesus is actually referring to something that they were very aware of. Um, he's calling them hidden tombs that people don't notice. Um, <laughs> kind of an interesting thing. Like in other words, people are walking, when they touch you or see you, it's like they don't realize they're touching a dead man's grave when they touch you and you are defiling them. That's what Jesus is saying. Instead of touching people and helping them as religious leaders should have, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all those guys, they were defiling people, um, religious leaders, uh, defiling. Does that happen today? Religious leaders that are out there defiling? Um, this is another thing we talked about on the deception of the last days. There's, there's people behind pulpits that were once maybe even considered solid Bible teaching pastors who are now embracing LGBTQ and saying, well, the Bible is this and that. And they're, they're, they're actually causing people to be defiled in their um, biblical interpretation and they're defiling their congregations. It's sad and it's, it's perverted. It's a perversion of the word of God and that's happening way too often. Um, so Jesus calling them hidden tombs, it means that the people that are touching them are becoming defiled. Um, some claim, you know, even today, you know, well, the Bible, you know, has some of God's word, but it is not God's word. It contains God's word, but it not, is, not, is not God's word. And even cemetery, I mean, seminary teaches that. A lot of seminaries are, are challenging the infallibility and the inspiration of scripture. Um, and, and the reason people call seminary cemetery is because how many times um, do you see where, you know, people, kids go to colleges and universities, so-called Christian ones, only to walk away um, atheists. It happens way more than you might think. Um, and it's so sad to me. Um, so there's a defiling that's going on by people that are considered to be religious leaders and what have you. Um, what's the solution to that, by the way? I think it's to be in the word yourself. Um, not just to take Pastor Brett's word for it, but Acts 17, 11, everything you hear, whether it's me or a podcast or another pastor, you got to check it in scripture and say, is this what the scriptures really teaches? And be convinced on your own because there's too many dangerous things that sound so good. I'm amazed how good some of these people sound. The only problem is they're totally contrary to the word of God. And just because they sound good or intellectual doesn't mean they're right. That was the problem with these guys. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, woe unto you. Now, the next woe, we change our audience. Um, and we'll see that here in verse 45. It says in verse 45, then answered one of the lawyers, uh-oh, we're talking about lawyers, and said unto him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. 
This is the lawyer uh, walking up going, wait a minute, you're talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, but are you lumping us in that group? And we're gonna see Jesus' response is, oh, you want some of this too? Um, that's a little paraphrase, but he's, he's, he's gonna hammer this lawyer. Um, uh, a man phones his lawyer and asks, hey, how much would you charge for just answering three simple questions? The lawyer says, $1,000. And he says, $1,000, um, isn't that a little bit expensive? And he says, uh, the lawyer said, sure is. Um, and what's your third question? Those of you that had to pay for your lawyer by the hour or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. This is not that kind of lawyer. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we told you what a lawyer was when you read about it in the, in the gospel. The lawyer was not Perry Mason or Matlock or any of those guys. The lawyers of that time were uh, you know, experts on the law, but not you know, drive 55 miles per hour, expert on the law of Moses. They were theologians. That, that's what we would consider them. The lawyers of the, the gospel narrative is, is men that were very much about studying the law of Moses. They were experts on the law. And you remember where I was telling you how there was the law of Moses, but then experts on the law added to the rules of the law, stupid stuff like the ceremonial cleansing stuff. Who did that? It was the lawyers. The lawyers were the ones who laid heavy burdens on the people saying, oh yeah, you gotta keep the law and you better keep the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Well, the lawyer said, well, here's what it is. And they started writing rules that were even outside of the law of Moses. Like, you know, you can't leave your house and if you're wearing false teeth, you have to take them out on the Sabbath because you're carrying too much weight. That all came from these lawyers who put heavy burdens on, of, here's what you gotta do. And they laid those heavy burdens on them. Jesus is now gonna talk to those guys and hold on to your hat. Verse 46, and Jesus said, woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. What a picture. These guys are enforcing burdens and rules on the poor people, the Jews, but they themselves wouldn't help them at all with it. They just wouldn't even lift a finger. Um, boy, there's so many groups we could talk about today that are kind of like that, that um, they lay burdens, but they don't lift a finger to help anybody. I hope that's not us. I hope that's not you. Um, these guys should have known the law of Moses and having known the law of Moses, they should have known some of the greatest of the laws to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The great Shema, we studied that a few weeks ago, right? So we've got this, this lawyer saying, what, you think we're like the Pharisees and the scribes? And Jesus uh, kind of like, yeah, you're even worse. And he hammers away saying that these guys are laying heavy burdens and you're not willing to lift one little finger um, out uh, to help people. So religious leaders interpreting the law, that's kind of important. Um, and so he's gonna continue uh, hitting these lawyers in woe number five. Um, woe unto you, verse 47. And by the way, this is 47 through 51 is, um, is this one. Um, but before I move on, I, I realize I'm a little mixed up here, but um, uh, is Jesus one who lifted a finger to help somebody with their burden? Um, did more than that, didn't he? Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Um, unlike these lawyers who wanted to put burdens on people, don't forget what Jesus came to do. I, I just have to say, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you um, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
That's the, that's the one we serve. I'm so thankful that he doesn't lay heavy burdens on us. Um, and it does beg the question, um, while we need to be like Jesus in talking about not just what we're for, but also what we're against, one, that's what Jesus is doing right here. But we also have to make sure that we're a burden bearer like Jesus. We can't just hammer away and then not be a burden bearer. And the question you might ask yourself, it's something we asked about Athey Creek, uh, you know, introspectively, are we a, a church that's bearing burdens or are we being a burden? And what about you personally? Are you a bummer or are you a blessing? When you walk up to people, people go, oh boy, here they come, great. Or when you walk up to somebody like, ah, oh, I love it when this person comes because they're so encouraging and, and, and you know, helpful and kind. Uh, who are you? Are you a bummer or are you a blessing? That's a good thing to ask. These lawyers were bummers and Jesus calls them out on that. Um, uh, so uh, that's something to remember. Um, by the way, uh, some people say because of things like that, you know, that we should be blessings instead of bummers. They want to throw the, the part out of exhortation, admonition, and even what Jesus is doing here. But if you read like, for example, first and second Corinthians, um, I, I sort of crack up because you almost see the pain that Paul the apostle has. Because what he has to do to the Corinthians, the Corinthians, they're the naughty church. They're doing all kinds of wacko stuff. And Paul writes the letters to Corinthians. He's kind of hammering away. All the other, like when he writes the Philippian church, there's just gushy love and kindness. But when he writes the Corinthian church, he's like, oh boy, you guys, man, the Corinthians. And he, and he has to sort of correct them. What were they doing wrong? Um, well, think about it. Like uh, he talks about, there's this, he said, you guys celebrate and are joyful about the fact you have a dude sitting in your church that's sleeping with your, his father's wife. That's pretty radical. And, and Paul says, you guys need to not only not celebrate that, but repent. Um, the Corinthian church, when it came time for the communion table, people were cut, taking cuts in line to get to the, the, the wine. And when it came time for them to drink the wine of communion, <laughs> they were getting drunk. They were getting drunk at the communion table. Paul's like, this ought not to be. You know, and he, and he, writes, he writes a whole half a chapter on how to have communion. And, and like, he's just hammering away at these naughty little Corinthians. <clears throat> but at the same time, I want it's, it's this truth and love that I'm trying to show us. In 2 Corinthians 1.24, this is what he says to them. He's, he's hammering away, not for that we have dominion over your faith. He's not wanting to control everybody in the Corinthian church. But he says, but I'm wanting to be helpers of your joy for by faith you stand. You see, in our culture, if anybody gets a corrective word or a sharp word or says something that's like true and a little bit painful or hurts, kind of like what Jesus is saying here about lawyers and Pharisees and scribes, we all think, well, that's just bad. But actually it's loving. Just like when Paul was cor correcting the Corinthian church, he was doing it because he didn't want to have power over them or dominion over their faith. He was saying, no, I'm doing this to help you with your joy. If you be obedient to God, you'll have joy in your heart for following God's word and plan. He was doing this because of love, not just to be brutal. Um, by the way, parents, you need to remember this. There's time to be your kid's friend, but most of the time you need to be the kid's parent. As an old children's pastor, youth pastor, I used to see parents that just wanted to be their, their um, child's little buddy. Oh, we're buddies. No, you're the parent. Stop being buddies. It's time to be a parent and teach them right from wrong and, and not be afraid. I'm amazed at what parents you know, uh, are afraid to talk to their kids about or to um, regularly teach and train. And we wonder why our kids are, are not doing well. Be careful. You have to kind of give the pointed uh, hard stuff along with the love and good. Why? Because you want to be helpers of their joy. Um, so that's, that's what he says here. Um, 
So now back to our woe number five, verse 47. Woe unto you, for you build sepulchers um, of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchers. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required from this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Question, why would Jesus say, you guys, lawyers, Pharisees, scribes, all those killing of the prophets that your fathers killed, Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, the, the prophets that they killed, um, all the way from, from A to Z, from Abel to Zacharias. And by the way, uh, if you're wondering, you know, this, Zachariah was the priest who was the last martyr of the Old Testament. You say, well, I don't know if that works out in my Bible, Brett. Well, you gotta understand in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, guess what's the last, um, the last uh, in that writing is actually Second Chronicles, believe it or not. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20 and 21, we see the martyrdom of Zacharias the priest. So that's, Jesus didn't make an error here. The reason I would say that, some people say, that's not the last martyr of the Old Testament. Jesus was wrong. No, you gotta read the Hebrew Bible as it was laid out back then. It was different than ours in that, the way it was ordered. Um, from A to Z. And what does he say? Here's the question. Why does Jesus say your generation, lawyers, Pharisees, scribes, you're, the, you're gonna be held to, to um, uh, it says here, it shall be re required of this generation. Um, and they might protest, say, yeah, but it was our parents. We built sepulchers, fancy tombs for the prophets. Um, but Jesus says, nope, you're gonna be held even more accountable. Question, why does Jesus hold this generation more accountable than even their parents who killed the prophets? And the answer is because they're the ones who are gonna kill Jesus. Do you remember when uh, Jesus would talk about the parables and he did this on a few occasions where he's talking parables. Oh, there once was an owner of a farm, um, the type of God, the father, and he entrusted his farm to a bunch of servants, humanity. And then, you know, when it came time to bring the fruit of their labor in the farm, he sent his servants to go and, and meet with the, farm, the farmers that were caring for the farm for the, for the owner. And what did they do to the, the servants that came? Anybody remember? They killed them. And they killed them one after another. Finally, the owner said, man, I'm gonna send my son. They'll respect him. So he sends his son and what do they do to him? They kill him. And then Jesus is talking to those religious leaders of that day saying, that parable's for you. You guys are those guys. This is what he's talking about here. He's saying, your fathers killed the prophets, but you guys are gonna kill the son. And that's why this generation is gonna be held even more accountable. Um, so, so outward, they seem to honor the prophets with their building of sepulchers, but the Lord is saying, yeah, whatever, um, you're, you're guiltier than your parents because you're gonna crucify the son of God. And that brings us to woe number six, the last of the woes here that Jesus is divvying out. Um, it says in verse 52, again to the lawyers, woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. Oh, this is happening today, by the way, in a pretty profound way. What is he saying? 
You lawyers are supposed to be the smart guys. You have the key to unlocking all knowledge by knowing the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. Um, his indictment becomes so severe here when he noted that they themselves not only were staying away from knowledge, um, particularly Jesus' teaching, but they were also taking away the key, that is, they were keeping the knowledge from other people, from them actually reaching true knowledge. And this is where, um, you know, I, I see the sad same story in many of the universities and seminaries that I was just talking about. I'm not anti-higher education for the record, but I am really bummed out to see what's happened. So many once good universities um, turned into really bad universities. Uh, some of the greatest universities we had that were Christian universities in the beginning of our nation are now the most secular and ugly of institutions. And it happens almost like clockwork at some point. Um, some seminaries and Christian colleges don't even believe in the, like I said earlier, the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible. They explain away the miracles uh, of the Bible. They, they say, you know, this and that, that you can't really rely on God's word. Um, but here's the problem. So many of these so-called, you know, scholars and experts, they leave young people, students, um, with more questions than they have answers. There's a philosophy in teaching today that I, I just have to disagree with, and it's not me. I'm gonna say it disagrees with the Bible. I'll show that in a second. But the philosophy is this. It's better just to raise questions. Let the college students come in. We'll just, we'll just question everything because that's, that's how people really learn. Just question. And so your kid that grows up, I had another kid just uh, recently that I, I heard about here at Athey, grew up uh, with a godly family and uh, going to church here at Athey. And they, then they went to George Fox where people go to lose faith. Um, Brett, you should stop bashing George Fox. Oh, I understand. There's, there are some good professors over at George Fox. Like I say, if you want a good professor at George Fox, go to the math department or the science department or anything with real thinkers, you know what I mean? People with brains. Um, but watch out for the psychology department, the theology department. They're the ones that are, have lost their marbles theologically. Um, they're, they're questioning God's word. They, they, uh, I say this and I know we have tons of George Fox students here at Athey, which I'm happy, I'm glad you're here. Um, but can I just give you a warning? Don't listen to some of these people that are raising more questions than giving you answers. Um, because that's not the way of true learning, at least according to the Bible. How do you know that? Well, let me just remind you what old Paul the apostle taught young Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.4, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which means building up your faith, which is in faith, so do. Avoid, get, don't give heed to those who come up with these um, you know, excuses of why we don't know stuff and they make more questions than they do um, give answers. Uh, later on uh, in 1 Timothy chapter six, um, the person is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words where uh, cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. If you're a college student at George Fox, don't be surprised. I've had bunches of college students say, Brett, I was in class the other day and they said, whatever you do, don't go to that Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. That came from George Fox professors. Um, uh, and you're like, is this a war between George Fox and Athey Creek? No, it's, it's just, I believe, a war on scripture. It's a war on the Bible and, and kids are coming out. There's this kid I heard just last week. He, he's an atheist now, graduated from George Fox. Congratulations, George Fox. Um, that's, what, that's what's happening to a lot of your students. I know there's some good hearted people, but I would say the good hearted people at George Fox, you need to start changing stuff over there because 
25, 30 years ago, they were on track. I know that, that we disagree with uh, some of the minor, you know, uh, non-essential things. We have differences, that's okay. It's on essential things like the inspiration of the word of God, that, that's a big one. And, and parents, you're spending $55,000 a year to make sure your kids come out with less built faith than when you send them in, maybe even bringing them to um, atheism. So watch out for these that are ministering questions. Um, um, well, Brett, or what are we supposed to do then? It, it's simple, uh, give them answers. You, you say, well, Brett, that's easier said than done. Nope, this is what the Bible says. Let's remember 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and be ready always, how often? Always to give an answer to every man, and I would add every college student, that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We don't wanna be haughty and say, we know all the answers. Um, that's not the right way. But, and I, I would say, Pastor Brett doesn't know all the answers. But I would say this with total um, you know, dogmatism, this book has all the answers right here. The Bible has every answer you ever need. And if you're ever asking me a question, hopefully I'm saying, well, here's what the Bible says about that. Because my opinion doesn't really bring great answers but the Bible brings every answer that is needed. So when, when you, a good Christian college that you go to or university, well, when, when there's questions, they, they can raise the questions, that's great, as long as they also give the answers. What's happening today is colleges and universities, kids are coming in and now they're deconstructing their faith. And sadly, they're not doing a very good job of building it up rightly, which is tragic. Watch out, beware. Um, let's see now. Um, and that's exactly what these guys do. You know, they're, they're, they're unwilling to apply the, the, the knowledge to themselves, but then they go and hide the key so that nobody can get the knowledge. That's, what, that's what's happening today. Did you know in medieval times, they used to, you know, not everybody had Bibles back in those days, you know, before the printing press and all that. But the priests, the Bibles they did have, the scrolls and Bibles, did you know they used to chain them to the pulpits? They'd chain them and lock them because they said, it's only for the priests to read and it's not for the layman. If you're, if you're just a, a, a person who goes to church, it's not for you to read the Bible. Um, and because of that, the church became crazy. We did crazy things because priests said, well, this is what we're supposed to do. And they never proved it in the Bible and nobody had a way to prove it. But once, you know, guys like Tyndale and Martin Luther and others started printing up Bibles and putting them in the hands of the people, everybody's like, wait a minute, this isn't what we're supposed to do. You know, and they were checking the scriptures. That's the way, Get, we have the key. Um, don't let people say we have the key, us you know, scholars at the universities and we alone can get into the truth. Don't believe that. The Bible tells you and me to check everyone, Acts 17, 11. And I hope you check me and I hope you check your podcast friends and your, your other Bible teachings and stuff. Acts 7, 11, search the scriptures daily to see if what's being said is true or false. Um, these guys, they keep the key to themselves and they're saying only we have true knowledge and Jesus indicts them and says, woe unto them. So how does he end the chapter as we wrap it up? Verse 53, it says, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him raises an interesting question. The scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, they tried to get Jesus to keep talking, not to gain understanding from him, 
um, but to uh, an effort to verbally trap him or to find something that you'd use against him. And eventually they would have to lie and make up stuff um, to falsely accuse Jesus and send him to the cross. Again, Jesus willingly went to the cross. But these six woes are, are things I think apply to today. And we should be really careful. When Jesus says, woe unto you, that should be worth sitting up and saying, okay, we sure don't wanna do whatever that is. Something to meditate on, these six woes. May the Lord give us wisdom. You know, um, one of the greatest things that I think, um, you know, we get to do is we can speak prickly, pointed, you know, tough topics like this. But I always love that, um, you know, we can always leave not just being a bummer. Well, Brett, that was great. Six woes. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Um, uh, But you see, this is the good news of the gospel. And that's why I always like to end with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is, we do fall short in these things. Sometimes we are prideful and want to be seen of men. Sometimes we do things that are wrong and we don't pass the knowledge on, even though we should. You know, we, we, we're guilty. You say, well, I haven't killed anybody. Well, you know, like the prophets. Uh, no, we've, we've done that. Jesus said the Sermon on the Mount, if you even have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. We all have things we have to say, oh Lord, help us not to be like these religious people, but to have that relationship with you and, and obedient to your word. Um, but when we fail, that's where the gospel, that's where we find that peace. That's when we see that Jesus is the bearer of our burden. And it's, it's by simply this, when you recognize your sin, you repent of your sin, you confess your faith in Christ and believe in him. With your mouth, you confess, with your heart, you believe. The Bible says, and when you do that, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, it says you will be saved. That's the good news. So when you fall short, and you will, you gotta turn to Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit says today. Lord, we do thank you for this little section of this scriptures, Lord. It's um, heavy to read about these Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers. But Lord, we also see our own human nature tendencies for these sinful behaviors, even in the church, even in our own personal walk, Lord. And I pray that these would be good reminders of our frailty and our temptation to, to be in the wrong direction so quickly. Lord, I do lift up um, this church that we'd be obedient to your word, but also the colleges and universities, Lord, the Christian ones. Um, I pray that there'd be strong leaders that would come in and set things right. Um, We do lift up George Fox, and I pray that they would um, see where they've allowed certain instructors to come in and get away from the truth of scripture. Um, May they see it and make make a change there. Lord, um, but um, give parents wisdom also where they are paying for kids to be uh, indoctrinated rather than educated. Help us be wise, Lord. For those that don't know you, may they give their hearts to you and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.